Well, hi, and welcome to Water of Life. We are so excited to have you with us here on this Wednesday night for our Wednesday night Bible study. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors on, on staff here at Water of Life, and I just want to encourage you. We're going to spend some time in worship. We're just going to relax in the presence of God. We're going to have a great Bible study with Pastor Dan in the book of Acts, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture tonight. And so I just want to encourage you. Engage, enjoy, grab your family together, spend some time around God's word. It's a great night to get together and just to allow the Lord to, to speak to us as a congregation and as individuals. And so a couple things I wanna remind you of. Uh, we have all kinds of updates. We have the pastor's devotion every, uh, every morning, every weekday morning, and you can get those at wallupdates.com. There's also a lot of news. I know people are asking about when are we opening, what's going on. All that information is available there at wallupdates.com. Uh, we also want to let you know that you've been sent, uh, you should have been sent a, an email to take a survey, and you can also uh, you can text survey, the word survey, to 818-818, and you can take a survey that we're asking as a staff that Pastor Dan would like you to take to just kind of take the temperature of our folks about what's going on and about reopening the church. And so we'd really appreciate it if you do that. Finally, uh, the service today is interactive. One of our favorite things about Wednesday Night Bible Study is at the end of service, after Pastor Dan is done with his teaching on the book of Acts, uh, he'll take your questions live about the study. And so whatever you want to ask about the study, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can either enter those questions into the chat uh, on the side in the live stream, or you can email them to onlinepastor at wateroflifecc.org. And so before we get started into worship, let me go ahead and open us up in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your church. Uh, Jesus said to Peter uh, that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so God, I'm so thankful that that is a promise we can stand on, that you built your church, that you are the architect, Jesus is the cornerstone, and we just have to participate in that building with you. And so Father, no matter what's happening, no matter how much we get agitated or frustrated or concerned, uh, you will build your church and there is nothing hell can do against it. And so Father, we thank you for that tonight. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be with us here, not only in the room, but in every room where people are watching and participating. God, that you would speak to us and that we would be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. So we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you worship with us? We're so glad you've joined us for our Wednesday night Bible study. Let's worship together. To every battle, to every heartbreak, to every circumstance, I believe that you are my fortress, oh, and you are my portion, and you are my
closer to your presence. Father, help us to be more aware of your presence. We welcome it wherever we are, wherever we're worshiping. I just pray for just a vulnerability and an honesty with you, Jesus. That you would just search our hearts and speak to us right now.
Stronger than anything.
Good evening, water of life. Let's pray together. Father, we want to come right now and just say, Father, we want your heart to go deeper in us. We want to know your heart better. Holy Spirit, we need you to do work in us that we can't get anywhere else. So we come to you tonight on those terms, and we just say we yield to you, Father. We surrender to you, God, and thank you that you are a shield that goes before us beside us, around us. You're the protector, the lifter of our head. So whatever circumstance we find ourselves in tonight, Father, as we start to study your word, we just ask for your grace to fall on people and your healing power to touch and restore lives in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen, 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 amen. Well, thank you for joining us tonight on Wednesday night Bible study at Water of Life. We're in the book of Acts. If you got your Bible, your iPad, your phone, want to encourage you to um, turn to chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. And um, see if we can walk in here with a, a couple of thoughts. I actually need, Jacob, um, this is so awkward because we're live, but I need my phone. So I need some stuff off my phone. I have a bunch of things I want to share with you tonight before we jump in the Word. And so I walked away without my phone. I got some of them here. Thank you, buddy. And um, so just when we're talking about the journey, many of you know that the journey changed this last week. It's become um, increasingly difficult. And like I said to some people last week, anytime you go in front of media, it's a minefield and you're going to get blown up. And certainly that's happened, um, both in good ways and in bad ways. But the bottom line is, is that I want to clarify some things with you as a church. I'm more concerned about how you're feeling and doing actually than all the people on social media that are hammering me and saying things that are inaccurate or not true. But I do want to just clarify some things, knowing that there are some negative things being said out there. I want to give you the, the tools to be able to answer those if people bring things up to you. Um, Water of Life has and is and continues to be a partner with the county. I was on the phone with two supervisors today I was on the phone this morning with the governor's office. We are still working at all of those things. Nothing has changed. 
we've continued to maintain our care for the poor, for the shut-in, for the homeless, for the senior populations. We're doing all the things we've always done during the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, we've given away, and I'll talk to you about that some more tonight, but we've given away close to $250,000 to support and care for people. We've been in discussions with the governor's office, um, county, local officials, and steps on how we could open worship centers and maintain safety, um, dis you know, social distancing, the same things that they're doing at Walmart, Costco, Home Depot. Churches can do the same things, and that's all we're asking for. Some people have said, well, how, you know, I saw on Channel 5 News the other day a picture of our Easter service, and there were hundreds of people gathered in the front, and they said, this pastor thinks he can open his church up and be safe. And I was like, that was so disingenuous ingenuous, and so dishonest. It was very troubling to see something like that. We're friends talking about right now opening the doors to 250 to 300 people a service. That would be it. They would all be socially distanced. They would be people, particularly at the, the first, as we start to roll this out, they'd be first responding kind of people. They'd be people that are in crisis. There would be people that are in depression. There are people that are shut in and lonely and single. We've got all, so many people feeding back to us those kinds of reports that we wanna to try to help those people and service those people. Um, they need fellowship, human touch, and they can't get that online. Now, that's one of the reasons why I asked you to fill out the survey results, and I re recognize this week that with the survey results, some of you think that we were gonna open back up to everybody. No, 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 we're just talking about two to 300 people on the floor. None of the stadium seating would be open here. Two to 300 people socially distanced on the floor safe, protected, all the CDC standards in place, all of those kinds of, of guards and, and guidelines, including masks. We won't do this if people don't wanna wear masks. So if you don't wanna come in with a mask on, then we won't be able to do that with you because we're going to adhere to the standards. And so one of the things that I, I wanted to say to you is that we have people we know are, um, are really hurting. And there's folks that are, you know, the things that we're not doing, people, have accused me, they've said, you know, you're in this for the money, you're trying to get, L let me help you with that. Our giving has been astounding. We have met our budget every single week since we've been out. So this is, has nothing whatsoever to do with money. This has to do with people, friends. We've never let money drive us at Water of Life. We're not doing that now. People have been calling in from the community and saying, I'm a charlatan, I'm trying to get people's money and all this kind of stuff. And obviously it's painful, you know, those are, those are difficult things to hear, but I understand those people don't understand anything about water of life and what we're doing. But I do wanna say, when you have and you hear those opportunities to kindly tell people, listen, we've given away $250,000. We paid all of our staff during this time off. We, this is not a money issue. This is a heart and a spiritual issue for us. This is an issue, as we've said to the governor's office, that, of being deemed as essential, that not deemed as, as is non-essential, which is what we're deemed as right now, that we're a danger. And the reality is we're not, we're not a danger. We wanna help. As I said to Fox News last week, many of you saw that or you heard that, um, I, I, we're part of the answer. We are not part of the problem. We've reiterated that to the governor's office over and over. And so one of the things that I wanted to say to you today was here, if you wanna know what drives me, um, I'll show you what drives me. This is a, just a thought here of somebody in our church that you could kind of get a picture of and understand how this feels. 
Greetings, Pastor Danny. Thank you, thank you, thank you for restarting live in-person church services once more. You will be under a lot of fire and criticism for doing so at this time. However, speaking personally as a, and this uh, person goes into their job as a first responder nurse and what their job looks like at two large care hospitals that are dealing with COVID-19 patients on a daily basis, I agree with your spirit-led decision to resume on-site services. The church is an essential part of this crisis. I've had mornings coming home from my work after grueling 12-hour shifts crying because I've listened to two or three code blue announcements over the loudspeaker calling for a team member to come as somebody is dying alone from the COVID virus with no visitors. Just putting on the proper PPE and wearing it for 12 hours is very stressful. And both of my hospitals are now running low on appropriate N95 masks, which makes us feel that we're not being safely protected when we're doing our jobs. The mental anguish, please listen to this part. This is what is driving me. The mental anguish and anxiety I'm feeling I've kept to myself as to not affect the quality of excellent care I must provide for my patients. I am weary. Thank goodness for your daily devotions. I thrive on them and the encouragement and redirected focus they offer. Thank you for being obedient to the Father and guiding us through this pandemic and just in general. For my spiritual and mental health, capital letters, I need to get out of the hospital, out of my house, and worship with my Water of Life family in person. I am bowing down in prayer and worship to the Father that his grace and mercy would be on all of us during the journey. This, friends, is what drives my heart. Those of you who've been around Water of Life for the last 30 years, you know that. We have so many people in depression right now, so many people uh, that are discouraged, so many people that are isolated and lonely. And what we want to do, what our desire is, is to open up a service at the end of the month for those people. So really, I wanna say to those of you who are eager to come back, a lot of you are, you would overwhelm us right now. We can't provide a safe environment for you yet. We're going to do some other things. We're gonna do drive-in church. We're gonna do some drive-in communions. We've got a whole bunch of things planned to start rolling out for you to say, hey, we're gonna start merging back together. We're gonna start having contact again with each other. But initially, we wanna join with those people that are really hurting, the first responders, the people that are isolated and lonely and discouraged. We want those people to be able to come back into an in-person service. So I wanna ask you, to be very prayerful about this as we move towards where we're going. I'm talking to our supervisors, like I said, our mayor and the governor's office about all of this, believing, praying that we can strike some kind of um, compromise with the governor's office that would allow us to meet in groups that are small and safe and protect people. So I wanna ask you to continue to pray with me over those things. Um, we are partnering, we're doing the right things. We wanna maintain social distancing. Um, we wanna do, temp we will do temperature screening if you come in. We're reducing our seating capacity to 10% of our worship center. We're gonna have to wear a mask. We're gonna have people sign up for services at RSVP so that we know how many people exactly will come and to what services. Um, we're gonna do all kinds of things to protect you because you are the most important thing to us. We love our church, we love the people of Water of Life, but we really feel at this point, it's time to crack the door open a little bit and to start to meet together. So I wanna ask you to pray with me, pray for these things. This has been a um, very, very 
difficult time, as I'm sure you can imagine, um, but it's also been a great time. It's been a great time to see your generosity. When I say we've given away $250,000, let me just explain that to you. Gail and I actually just got our, um, our stimulus checks and, and we're gonna donate them in as well. But friends, we have been given $550,000 of stimulus money to care for the poor. So I, I don't know if you can shout, but I can. And we have helped so many people around the world so many other churches. I got a letter from a church today that just said, thank you for allowing us to feed our people. Thank you for allowing us to be back online. Thank you for helping us. We're trying to serve people. We're trying to help people all over Southern California, all over the Los Angeles area, all over our own San Bernardino County. Because of your generosity, you're just amazing. I say it to you all the time, I cannot overstate how amazing you are. I was on the phone with Pastor Robert Morris at Gateway today for a long time, praying together, talking about the journey here in California. And he was telling me how many millions of dollars they've been able to give away. And he said, you know, Pastor, you guys are knocking it out of the park at Water of Life. I said, we are. For the size of church that we have, we're just really doing great. So I wanna commend you, commend you, commend you, and say thank you, thank you, thank you. Some of you wonder where's the money gone? It's gone to homeless distribution, it's gone to caring for households. We serve 1,830 households by ourselves this week. Uh, our, night, our relief fund has gone to India, Uganda, Kenya, Cambodia, Bangladesh, Cuba, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Bernardino. Um, we've done worldwide relief with Reach Now International, feeding hundreds and hundreds of people. We bought masks that we've donated to Kaiser Hospital. We've done individual family support all over. And, we're trying to do ministry at the same time and love you. So it's a very busy time. I know most of you didn't sign on for this. You signed on for, um, for Bible study. So let's do Bible study together. That would be the best thing we could do today if I can get my Bible study back up. There we go, the book of Acts. You got your Bibles out, your iPad, your phone. Let's talk about the book of Acts for a while. I wanna pray again and open this back up. Father, we wanna come to you and just say thank you, God, for the book of Acts. Thank you for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Thank you for your supernatural work and thank you for our church, God. And we do pray, Father, that as we walk through the journey together, that we would do it mindfully, humbly, thoughtfully, and kindly. But God, help us to do it with wisdom and, and a heart that is set before your throne to honor you in the name of Jesus. Amen, 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 amen. Okay, so let's talk about where we were last week. I told you a couple weeks ago in chapter six, seven, eight, nine, we're gonna cover three people. We're gonna talk about Stephen, Saul, and Philip. We've been talking about those three people. We talked about Stephen the first week and he got martyred. Chapter six, we talked about Saul a little bit after that, what he was doing. Then last week in chapter eight, we talked about Philip. And the reality was Stephen's martyrdom uh, unleashed this persecution that took place and scattered Christians all over the place out of Jerusalem. Chapter eight, we got Philip on the road to Gaza, leading this Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, baptizing him and then sending him off to Ethiopia where he founded, we know he founded one of the oldest churches in the history of the world. It's like the oldest church outside of churches in Jerusalem that we know of in the whole world. So amazing things happening. You get into chapter nine here in, in, in Acts and you see chapter nine is one of the most profound, it's like Pastor John said, one of the most profound chapters in the Bible because please get this, we're gonna cover the most pivotal event that takes place in the New Testament outside of the resurrection of Christ. 
Chapter nine in Acts is the most pivotal event outside of the resurrection in all of the New Testament. It is so dramatic, the fallout was so essential, all of the early church would be changed because of what happens in chapter nine. And what happens is we're gonna meet this guy, Saul of Tarsus, that was his Hebrew name. His name gets changed to Paul, that's his Roman name. Because he's gonna be in the Gentile world, dealing with Romans and Greeks primarily, he went by the name Paul after his conversion. The event is so big, and the reaction to the event was so large, the outcome in history was so great that you cannot minimize this text. What the, the, the reality of this text is there's 57 verses in the book of Acts that cover the conversion of Paul. So just that alone in three different places, chapter 22, chapter 29, chapter nine, those three things, just that should say to us all, this is really, really big. Why was it really big? Let's go there for a minute before we jump into the text. Paul was relentless in his opposition to Christians and Christianity, to what was called the way. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. His zeal was unmatched. He was a zealot of the highest degree. He actually said in verse 23 that, that, that he was so strongly opposed to Christians. If you go down to verse 23 in chapter nine, it says many days elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. When it says Jews, please understand this, this wasn't Jewish people. This was Jewish leaders. That's why it says Jews. These were Paul's contemporaries. These were people that Paul hung with, grew up with, partnered with, and they saw him as a turncoat and a traitor. So when you start to look at him, he said this about himself in Philippians 3, 4, and 5. He said, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was taught by Gamaliel. He was one, the one who suggested to other leaders. Gamaliel was the one who suggested to other leaders they not kill Peter and the other apostles, John, when they had them, and he got them just a good whooping, and then they got released. Acts chapter five, they beat them, and then they released them. Paul was all part of that. Paul was there when that took place. You gotta get that in your head. Peter and the other apostles saw Paul as one of the greatest opposers of the early church. So Saul was clearly a part of Stephen's stoning and his martyrdom. It was required by law, according to Paul, for someone else saying that, that, that there was, they were God, which would be Jesus. He declared, Stephen said, Jesus is God. And for that, Saul and the other in the Sanhedrin decided that he must die. So clearly he was part of that. He was raised in the school of Gamaliel, yet he surpassed Gamaliel far in his zealousy and his studies. He was bound, hidebound, you could say, to the Old Testament law, and he believed so strongly he would kill anybody who didn't agree. So he would become the first missionary for the early church. That was the least likely person in the whole world to become the first missionary of the Christian church. But his zeal, when he was won over to Christ, was transformed in his zeal for Jesus. He was driven to the corners of the Roman Empire, where there are reports that he went not only to Spain, but some actually believe he traveled as far as Great Britain during his travels. So he was driven throughout the Roman Empire. So I wanna ask you tonight, before we jump in, to just ask yourself a question. Is there a person you cannot imagine being saved? Is there a person that you would say, impossible, never happen? I want you to think about that person right now. Could be a government official, could be somebody you know at work, could be somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your family even. And you would say, uh, that, that would be impossible for them to know Jesus. I want you to zero in on that person because 
It could be somebody that opposes God, <clears throat> that really stands hard against Christ in your journey. You know, it could be somebody in the media, at work. could be anywhere. could be somebody that you really have a dislike for. And you think to yourself, what if that person knew God? I want to challenge you tonight to rethink that. Because, friends, if Saul of Tarsus can meet Jesus, anybody can meet Jesus. you got to think like that. That's the whole picture here. The eyes of hope believe beyond what they can see, friends. you got to believe beyond what you can see. We need to pray for people who are against us. See, friends, the power of a praying church is, is unstoppable. Not get bitter, angry, you know, frustrated. Don't let that happen to you. We want to be a loving church, a kind church, a responsive church, a thoughtful church. Friends, we want to do what Jesus would do. Really do what Jesus would do. Love people who hate us. Pray for people who don't like us. If Saul can get converted to Christ, friends, anybody you know can come to Jesus. So there are, let's jump in here, there are three accounts in the book of Acts of Saul's conversion. Acts chapter nine, chapter 22, I think I said, and chapter 29, but the other one's in chapter 26, verses four to 18, chapter 22, three to 16. One is objective, that's the one we're gonna read tonight. The other two are subjective. They're Paul's opinion of himself. You know, Paul talking about his conversion from his own point of view. 57 verses on one person's conversion in the book of Acts. Come on, this is gigantic. If you move through the book of Acts, what you're gonna find out now as we start to launch through chapter nine, 10, 11, now it isn't weeks or months passing, years are going to start passing by. So this starts to unramp at, at a huge level where in the first parts of our study, it was going slow, it was going by weeks and months, now it's gonna launch into years. So you need to get ready for that. When you look at, and just think like this as we start to launch in here, when you look at people that you disagree with, you feel angry at, think this, that's exactly how the early church felt about Saul. They did not like this guy. They were angry at him. So you've got your Bible, your iPad, your phone, verse one, chapter nine, book of Acts. It says, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So he says that get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. These first six verses set the stage for everything that's gonna unfold here, friends, because it's an amazing picture. First, you gotta get this. The Roman authorities have given authority to the Sanhedrin to go ahead and attack Christians. There's no question that it happened here. They had authority under the Roman Empire. So this didn't just happen in Jerusalem. Paul's gonna take his letter and go to Syria, and to Damascus the capital of Syria, he's gonna go there and capture Christians. And you might say, how could he do that? Well, because it's all under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. And they had given the authority to the Jews in Jerusalem to be able to do that. So Paul is operating under that authority. Now, Paul's operating on, under something else as well. 
And I think it's a huge level of conviction because he watched Stephen get martyred and he watched, the Bible told us that Stephen's face was like an angel. That must have haunted Paul to death. He must have just not been able to get that picture out of his mind, especially when Stephen pretty much paraphrased the Lord when he said, do not hold this sin against them when he was dying. Those kind of things I think must have gotten inside of Saul of Tarsus and really tormented him at some level. So it says that he got letters in verse one and then verse two, it says that he could, he, he could, if he found anybody belonging to the way, he could bring them bound to Jerusalem as a prisoner. Now the way, this is capitalized in your Bible if you're reading your Bible, the way was the early church. They called themselves the way. Chapter 19, nine, uh, verse nine and 23 in chapter 19, chapter 22, verse four, chapter 24, verse 14, chapter 22, uh, six different times in the book of Acts, the early church is called the way, the way. The way of what? The way of life in Jesus. These people were literally living the way of life in Jesus. How many know we need that in our church? We need to live the life of Jesus, friends, not the life of the world, not the life of our neighbor, but we can be defined by the way that Jesus lived. And that's actually who these people were. So Paul is being driven with a rage. You gotta understand a rage inside of him. And this is, I need to say, a spiritual bondage. This is way past just being a mad guy. Let me read you what Paul said in Acts 26, verse nine. He said, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers, listen to what Paul did, to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. So Paul literally was a murderer. He murdered Christians. Many times I had them punished in synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so, listen to these words, violently opposed to them that I chased them down in foreign cities. There was a rage that drove this, this guy, Saul of Tarsus, and he was driven by anger. So the decrees of the Sanhedrin were, bound, were, were, were binding, not just in Jerusalem, but also when he went to other countries, and he said other nations looking for them. So it says in verse three, that as he was traveling on the road to Damascus, he was close to Damascus, as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light struck him. So you get this part, he's 150 miles to Damascus, so this is a big deal. I mean, there was no transportation, he really wanted to be there. And we know that in Damascus, they had a large Jewish population. Damascus was a city of antiquity. It had been around since the days of Abraham. Old, old, old city, capital of Syria. They had between 10 and 20,000 Jews massacred there in AD 66. So we know there was a large Jewish population and many of those Jewish people were giving their lives to Jesus. So that's why Paul is on the way to Damascus. Now, when we get to verse four, this just gets huge. This is a complete game changer in, in verse four. It says this, he hears a voice around him. It says, and he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Okay, let's stop right there. This is so big. It can redefine your whole relationship with Christ. 
This is one of the largest statements in all of the New Testament, friends, in regards to a Christian and your identity in Jesus. Who was being persecuted by Saul? Well, we knew in chapter eight, verse three, it says very clearly, he persecuted the church. It says in chapter nine, verse one, that he persecuted the disciples of the Lord. So he was persecuting people who were followers of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting people that follow me? No, he never said that, friends. Listen to what he says. Why are you persecuting me? Do you know that later, Saul, in his passion and great theological mind that he had, he wrote extensively about how we are found in Christ Jesus. If we have gone into baptism with him, we're resurrected out of baptism into a new life in Christ. So oftentimes I'll say to you, listen, if you know Jesus, you are in Christ. You're in Christ. You are in him. And the father sees you like he sees his son. Friends, some of you think, oh, that's your idea, Pastor Dan. No, 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 no. Jesus said that right here, friends. Who are you persecuting? Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus that you're persecuting. Get up and go into the city and I'll tell you what you've got to do. See, the Bible says this in Hebrews 7.25, that Jesus lives to make intercession for you. Jesus lives to protect and guard you. Therefore, it says in in Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he lives to intercede for them. Friends, Jesus is your guard. He is your protector. He is your shield and your refuge. When, when Saul said, who are you, Lord? He really said this, who are you, sir? The word can be, is really a, a covering kind of general word that, that, that describes somebody in authority or a person over him. So he really basically, he wasn't calling Jesus his Lord. He was saying, who are you, sir? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, some of you don't feel like God is concerned about your situation right now, that God is in the journey with you. Please listen. The early church was being persecuted. They were being thrown in prison and killed. And Jesus said, you're doing that to me. Jesus Christ cares about you. Stop and think about this. He so identifies with you and your pain that he calls it his own. And this is really large for some of you. You've been hurt, you've been assaulted, you've been violated, you've been crushed. You wonder where Jesus was at in the middle of all that. Like, God, if you love me, if you love people, where are you? I'll tell you what, he was there with you. He was torn up like you. He said that here, you are persecuting me. This is a verse that says he is in you and you are in him if you know Christ. God's heart was broken when you went through that event, friends, that that devastated your heart. God's heart was broken when somebody assaulted you. God's heart is broken when we assault each other. Please, friends, just take this and go out to the body of Christ. Think like this. Jesus identified so deeply with his church What are we doing as Christians when we're criticizing each other? I'll answer for you, you're criticizing Jesus. My job is not to prune the church, friends. Your job is not to prune other Christians. 
John 15 is very clear about that. That's a Holy Spirit's job. My job is to pray for people if they come to me and say, help me to understand this, to uh, reprove them, to give direction to them. I'm supposed to do all those things nicely, kindly, but friends, at the end of the day, that is between people and Jesus. He is the pruner, Father. The, your, your Father is the one who takes care and clips back what is wrong in people's lives. Not me, not you. And far be it from us to start to judge other people in the body of Christ, condemn other people in the body of Christ. Friends, when you do that, you're condemning Jesus. Be careful. Because some of us major and minor stuff, we get so hung up in divisive things. And the Bible says, look at love people and hold the truth. Don't yield on issues of truth. Be kind, but don't yield. But friends, don't be divisive. Don't try to create a struggle and a division when you don't need to. So watch this. Verse seven, eight, and nine. We're gonna roll through this quickly now. It says, a man who traveled with him saw what had happened. <clears throat> he was told to go into the city and be told what would happen. It says in verse seven, the guys who were traveling with him saw this. They stood speechless, hearing the voice, but they couldn't see anybody. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was blinded, literally, by the light. Blinded by the light. They led him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and he ate nothing or drank nothing. Okay, this is a great picture, friends. This is a picture of deliverance. This is a guy that one moment was so competent in himself, in his position theologically, in his position you know, morally, it was okay to kill Christians. He was so competent, and in one sentence, when he said, who are you that I'm persecuting? And Jesus said, it is me, Jesus, that you're persecuting. That sentence changed Paul's life so deeply, so profoundly, that he spent the next three days trying to sort that out. I, I wanna just offer to you my opinion that he was bound by, by hell in darkness, that there was a spiritual bondage here that filled him with rage and that he was forever changed over three days. That there was a salvation moment and a completion of that over a period of time where he had to sort out his spiritual blindness. He had to sort out his repentance with the Lord. He had to bow down before God and cry out for forgiveness. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan blinds the minds of people who don't believe in Jesus. And Paul, friends, was blinded. And I believe Satan blinded him. He was in spiritual bondage and he needed deliverance. His physical blindness, this is such a great picture, brought forth spiritual sight. When God blinded him in the physical, he began to open the eyes of his heart in the spiritual realm so he could see again. This is such a great, great picture. It took three days in darkness for the light to really shine deeply inside of Paul, the apostle, Saul, the, the Pharisee, that was being transformed into the Apostle Paul. Breaking bondage, breaking blindness. We know later, just as a side note, that he had issues with his sight. Some people will refer to this text and say it was because of this. It, there's nothing in this text that, that actually says that took place. But here's what did take place, we're certain. In verse 10, up to verse 18, is that there were three guys with bad names that get redeemed. One named Ananias, we know about Ananias and Sapphira, we covered that story. One named Saul, 
and you go back to King Saul, he started out well and ended poorly. And one named Judas, who again, crashed and burned. So let's read it. It says in verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision that a man named Ananias is gonna come and lay hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard many bad things about this guy. How much harm he did to your church and the saints in Jerusalem. And here he is, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a cho chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed, entered the house after laying his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to help you that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight, he got up and he was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Okay, let's walk through this quickly. This is such a great picture. Let's start with Ananias. Ananias is obviously a lovely guy who loves God. There's no question about that. He was a Jew, a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Greek Jew, and he had given his life to Jesus. He's in Damascus. He's scared to death that Paul's gonna come and persecute him, lock him up, haul him off to prison. I, see, I just love this guy's humanity. I think his humanity is amazing. He's totally committed to the kingdom of God. He walks with God. Please get this, some of you who are hyper-spiritual, because this guy is totally, totally committed to the kingdom, and he is called to go to the street called Straight. It says the Lord speaks a vision to him, and he doesn't even hesitate. It's not like he goes, oh my gosh, he just says, here I am. Lord speaks his name, Ananias, here I am. I'm up, I'm ready, Lord, I'm your guy. The Lord says to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. By the way, that street is still in Damascus today. Just a side note there. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man uh, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hand on him, so he regained his sight. And Ananias just said this, no problem, Lord, I'm on it. That is not what happened, is it? <laughs> I think Ananias probably said, I don't know what's going on in heaven, but have you heard what this guy's doing on earth? Because <laughs> it's not good. Are you missing something here, Lord? What? What are you thinking? So Ananias had a, a vision, a haroma, literally. It, it's where we get the word a panorama. You know, a large, he saw in the spiritual realm this huge thing, and, 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 and God starts to move with power over him. And so he, at first, just is so human, I just love this, he questions Jesus. He knows it's Jesus talking to him. And Ananias says to the Lord, Lord, I heard from a lot of people, this guy hurts people. What he's done to people in Jerusalem. He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Stop right there and think about this for a minute, won't you, would you? I don't think you can be a healthy Christian without being an honest one. I, I just want to say that to you again. I don't think you can be a healthy Christian without being an honest one. And some of us are not honest about the pain we feel with God. Some of us are not transparent and, and real. 
See, I think healthy Christian living starts with honesty with God. Friends, if you're not transparent, if you just feel like you always gotta fly above everything and be super spiritual, I think you're missing something in the story here. Because this guy is super, super spiritual guy, and he's a really real person. He just looks at the Lord and goes, are you kidding? I don't want the job. Get somebody else for this assignment, Lord. This is a bad assignment. Get somebody else for this assignment. The Lord said, no, 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 you're the guy. You're the guy. And Ananias says, if I'm the guy, the Lord said to him, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine. He explained what's gonna happen. He's gonna go to Gentiles, kings, sons of Israel. I'll show him how he must suffer. So Ananias doesn't push back anymore. He obeys. He departs, he enters the house, he lays his hands on him. And you gotta get this. This is an apostolic impartation happening right here. Paul is becoming an apostle right now. Saul is turning from Saul, the Pharisee of Tarsus, into Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He is getting an apostolic anointing. He saw Jesus. That was one of the criteria for becoming an apostle. You had to have seen Jesus. He saw Jesus on the road. He met Jesus face to face. And now, laying on of hands, an impartation is taking place. Ananias goes to him, lays his hands on him, and he says to him, Brother Saul, you dirty, rotten murderer of my friends. No, he didn't say that, but he might have thought that. I mean, he killed people that Ananias likely knew. And Ananias lays his hand on him and calls him his brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you by the road, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be full of the Holy Spirit. This is so important, the same picture. Receive Christ, receive the power of the Spirit. Receive Christ, receive the power of the Spirit. You see it all over in the book of Acts, and you see it again here. Receive Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and then get baptized. And I said this to you last week, a lot of you have not been baptized, you need to obey. As soon as we can, we need to get you in the water and get you baptized. And he took bread, and he took food, and he was strengthened. And literally, that's the last we ever hear of this guy, Ananias. But here's the picture of Saul. He starts to preach. He's gotten delivered. Suddenly, this transformation's happened. The scales have come off his heart. He has spiritual eyes. He sees the whole Old Testament as a completely different book than he ever knew it. He sees Jesus everywhere in the scriptures where he was blinded prior to that. So he gets up. It says, for several days he was with the disciples in Damascus and immediately he begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he's the son of God. And everybody in the synagogue is fainting because they're thinking, what the heck are you doing? You came here to capture these people and imprison them. And instead you're declaring that Jesus is the son of God. It says they, they were amazed and they're saying, isn't this the guy who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name of Jesus? And he had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept, in, now listen to these words, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So he's using the Old Testament scriptures to confound the Jews and the leaders there because he was such, such, such a brilliant guy. Now, the way that Paul put it, he, he gives you some detail here and I'll show you where this goes because they now have to get him out of town because he's becoming a hot potato it says, many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together, in verse 23, to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates by day and night so they could put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through a basket and an opening in the wall, luring him down in a large basket. 
This is such a humiliating picture for a guy who was marching into town with orders and authority and power to arrest people, and suddenly he has been humbled. It this says in verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. I need to stop right there, because likely there was three years that passed from that verse 26 and verse 25. Let me read it to you from Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul's own description of what happened. You know that when I, was follow, when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God had chosen me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human beings, nor did I even go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went to Arabia and later returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother, and I declare before God that I am, what I'm writing to you is not a lie. After that, I went on a visit to north, the provinces of Syria and Cilicia, and still the churches in Christ that are in Judea did not know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy, and they praise God because of my life. So you got a picture here of Paul going out into the desert. Likely it was either right here or when he first came to Jerusalem and got rejected. So it appears that it was before he got to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 26 that when he did come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. Well, again, think, they must have hated this guy. There must have been a huge level of anger and frustration with, with Saul of Tarsus, with this guy who was a persecutor of the church. But it says in verse 27, Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And then he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem and speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. The end of verse 28. Let's go here for a minute and talk about this. Barnabas is operating in his name. His name, we know, wasn't Barnabas originally, but he was such an encourager that people renamed him Barnabas. And he takes Paul under his wings. Now, this is a gigantic risk. Some of you need to figure this out. This is what leaders are supposed to do. Take risks with people that you think God is raising up. Sometimes they're gonna be successful, sometimes they're gonna fail. Paul actually failed this time with Barnabas. So did it hurt Barnabas' reputation? I bet it did some. I bet some of the other apostles looked at him and said, dude, that wasn't the smartest call you ever made, but I'll tell you something, it was in the long run. Because Barnabas actually goes back years later and pulls Paul back into the ministry in Antioch and Paul changes the world then but only because Barnabas understood the need to disciple people, pull people underneath you, and give them another chance. Friends, this is what God wants to say to some of you. Look around for people that are being treated unjustly. Look around for people that are not being cared for properly. That is your calling, that's my call. Take a risk when you're at school, students, and, and, there's, and there's people eating lunch always by themselves because they're ostracized by everybody else. Sit with that person love that person, use your reputation and the foundation God has given you to reach back and care for other people. Friends, that's the heart of God. 
That's the picture here of Barnabas and Saul. So when you get down here in verse 21, 22, 23, 24, you see that these people hated him. They hated him, but Barnabas stood up for him. If Barnabas hadn't stood up here, what would have happened to the guy? We don't know. All the way down through, you get into 20, verse 29. Now watch what happens. It says he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. He's gone back into the same synagogue that Stephen likely came out of. And he's arguing with Greek Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. These are the same people he's arguing with in Damascus. Same group of people, same culture. And one of the things you gotta ask yourself was what was Saul of Tarsus called to be as Paul the Apostle? He was the apostle to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. Could he argue down any Jew? Yes, he could. That was not his calling. When he operated out of his gifting, he created a hornet's nest. I mean, Paul was really a guy who either started a riot or a revival. That's how, he was so fired up. That's just wherever he went, it was a, a riot or a revival. And here it's a riot. Watch what happens. It says that he's arguing with these people. They want to put him to death. And the brethren, the leaders heard of it. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So first they sent him up the coast to Caesarea where he would uh, actually begin to impart the gospel. And we know that because we're gonna study Cornelius and his vision in Caesarea. That very likely may have taken place because Paul visited there before Peter ever came there from Jaffa. And so that's next week's lesson. But you gotta get this part here. This is so important that Saul of Tarsus, literally when he was, he was a, a problem in the early church, he failed. And they, lowered, they got him out of the city and they, they, they took him away and sent him home. It says they sent him to Caesarea and then away to Tarsus. He was Saul of Tarsus. Literally, the apostle said this, bless you, brother, we're glad you know Jesus. Please go home. Please go home. I don't know if you've ever been expelled from a meeting or asked to leave, but that would not be a happy day for most of us. I don't know if you've ever been in church and your heart was full of sin, and you watch the Holy Spirit fall on people around you and start moving over the church, and you're sitting there going, hmm, I don't feel anything. I, I mean, this is not happening for me. Friends, when I'm in a meeting, and I see the Spirit of God start to move people, and it's not moving me, He, the Holy Spirit, not it, but He, the Holy Spirit, is not moving me, that's a good time for me to start asking questions about my heart. And that really was what Saul needed to do, Paul. He needed to go home and sort out his heart. He was in error. He was making a mistake. When they sent him home, it was addition by subtraction. Listen to what happens. It says the church throughout all of Judea, in verse 31, and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going forth in the fear of the Lord and comfort, and it continued to increase. When did the church grow? When Saul left. <laughs> That's a bad way. Don't put that on your resume, okay? Now, let's close up real quickly with verse 32 to 43 is a picture of Peter comes back in suddenly at this, uh, this city of Lydda, or Lod as it's actually called today. It's about nine miles from Tel Aviv. It's where the airport is, Ben-Gurion Airport. And it was about a 14-mile walk for Peter from Jerusalem. But it says as Peter was traveling through the regions, he came to a town, uh, Saints at Lydda, and he found a, a man named Ananias, and he was been bedridden for eight years, paralyzed. And Peter said to him exactly what Jesus said. You know, Christ heals you, get up and make your bed. 
Uh, how many times had he seen other, Jesus do this with other people and he just reiterated exactly what Jesus did. The guy got healed, got up imme immediately, and all who lived in that area saw him and turned to the Lord. Then it says in verse 36, now in Joppa, or today we call that Jaffa, on the coastline just below Tel Aviv, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas, and this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and she died. And when they had washed her body, which would be what Jewish people would always do, wash the body and bury them usually within the first day, they laid it up in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay, but come to us immediately. So Peter arose, walked 10 miles or more to get to them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows were there weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make them while she was with them. She was obviously a, a very skilled lady and they wanted to show off her stuff. And so you've got this picture of, of, of Peter moving in the power of healing. It says, Peter sent them all out. He did what he had seen Jesus do. He sent people out of the room, knelt down, and spoke, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave his hand, gave her his hand and raised her up, calling the saints and widows. He presented her as alive, and it became known all over Joppa. Many believed in the Lord, and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with the tanner named Simon. Now, I want to tell you, we still go to Simon's house when we're in Joppa, Today, Simon the Tanner's house is still there. And there's something, though, in that little statement that we'll pick up in the next couple of weeks that's very important, particularly next week when he goes to minister to Cornelius. And that is this, that something's happening in Peter's heart. He's changing from that legalistic, hardcore, shut-down Jewish person and mentality to opening up to Gentiles. And how do we know that? Because he was not allowed to be in the Tanner's house. According to the Levitical law, he was not around, allowed to be around somebody who was killing animals and tanning their hide. That would have uh, um, been, that was, that was not allowed for a person of his stature as an apostle at those days. That would have been, he would have been violating the law. But the truth was this, he knew that there was something else happening. And literally, Jesus said this, and we'll leave this at John 14. Jesus said, greater works will you do than I have done. And we look at this Peter healing this paralyzed guy, raising this dead lady, and we think those are great works. But I'll tell you what, the greatest work wasn't that. The greatest work was what happens in chapter 10 when Gentiles start to open up to Jesus and get filled with the Spirit. Friends, that was something Jesus had never been able to do. The church was finally going to go around the world, not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. That, that, is the fulfillment of John chapter 14. So I'm way over time-wise. I know some of you have questions. Let's see if we can get Pastor John up here and answer some of your questions. That was a buzzsaw of a Bible study tonight, wasn't it? Wow. All right, we do have some questions. It's... It's just so encouraging though, isn't it, to think of, you know, we think about the issues that we're dealing with right now and frustrated about church and all of this, and you realize that over the course of history, the gospel has come against such incredible opposition over and over and over again, and nothing ever held it back. There was nothing that could ever get in the way of the good news going out. Um, 
And so uh, a lot of people asking uh, great questions about the passage tonight. Um, the first one is Memo said, did the first century Jewish people ever reconcile with God? At what point did they stop persecuting those of the way? And that's, a, that's a great question because one of the things that did happen was the persecution started in Jerusalem started to die out. And we know that, that there's no other mention. Once they had dispersed a bunch of the Jews, uh, the Jewish Christians out of town, the, the persecution began to die out. But you know, one of the things that you would find if you studied this closely is a lot of people think the persecution was literally tied to the Apostle Paul, to Saul of Tarsus. And that when he got saved, the persecution died out because his old man died out. And it literally disappeared off the planet. There was nobody to drive and fuel the persecution. So yeah. um, second thing is, is the question about what happened to Jews. No, they never did respond to, and Jesus wept over that as he entered Jerusalem. They never responded to Jesus. And then they were um, dispersed themselves in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed the city. So, Yeah, All right. Um, Somebody said, do we, is there a way that we're, we still persecute Jesus like Paul did? Is there a way that we can still do that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I spoke to it at the beginning of our time together. If you are online slamming somebody else in another church, in another possible, even, you know, a, a, another theological persuasion than you, then I think you're persecuting Jesus, yeah. Yeah. I think Jesus said that, not Dan. I think Jesus said that. I think we need to be very careful about honoring each other, even if we disagree with each other. Yeah. Uh, Benny said, and we have two questions that are pretty similar. Um, Benny said, Ananias questioned Jesus. I hear that we shouldn't question God, that it shows a lack of faith. And then Brad said, um, Ananias seems to be asking God in Acts 9, are you sure you want me to do that? Um, and it seems similar to the prophet Samuel who questions the risk of going to anoint King David and making Saul angry. Uh, based on these incidents, would you say it's okay to discuss with God when he's asking us to do something that seems crazy risky? Absolutely. That's why I said I think that a healthy Christian is an honest Christian. And too often we live under that pretense of what the first question stated. Yeah. Any, any doubt or any thing that is other than absolute uh, immediate obedience is a lack of faith. I just don't believe that because this guy clearly is called out by God and he, and he, he obeys, but he wants to talk about it with Jesus. He wants yeah. to interact with him about it. He's not just gonna jump up and run off. I mean, he must have been thinking, you know, I don't know what you're doing up there, Lord, but down here things are rough right now. <laughs> Come on, get on board with us. And clearly, Clearly, Jesus explained to him, I do fully understand this. You don't understand what I'm doing. And so Ananias got that right away, and that's what we all have to do, is figure out that God's plans are much larger than ours, much bigger, and much more mysterious than ours. We gotta get on board. Yeah. Even though we don't understand, we have to obey. But that doesn't mean you can't have that discussion with Jesus. He's your friend. He's your Lord, your King. And when you have a, a thoughtful, humble, interactive discussion with Jesus, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. That's healthy. I think if you, even, even in the, the Old Testament, over and over and over again, if there's anything, it's people being really painfully, brutally honest, honest with God. Honest with God, amen. Their doubts, their frustrations, their anger. Yeah, yeah all the time. And too many of us in, in our Christian walk, in our churches today, in our faith, we, we, we you know, slam that. We say that's wrong, and it's just not wrong. It's very clearly, it's in the Word. So. 
and allow that grace for each other, you know? Yeah. Amen. To yeah. be different. We're all going to get to heaven and find out that we're theologically wrong somewhere. <laughs> we are. <laughs> exactly. Um, Teresa says, what is the difference between holding another Christian accountable and judging them? Well, they're different. There's anacrino and creno. There's two different words used in the, te- in the scripture. Judging somebody is when you use your criteria to evaluate their situation. When you use scripture to evaluate a situation, that is called discernment. That's way different than judgment. Judgment is my ruler on your life. Me measuring you out and finding you wanting and saying you don't measure up to me. That is what we're told not to do with people. But we are also told to discern situations. So if somebody is violating scripture very clearly, the Bible says use discernment and understand that. That's not judgment. So. Yeah, I hear that all the time, that confusion. Yeah. If I really love somebody, I couldn't tell them that they shouldn't be doing this. Oh, no, 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 no. You need to just be, if you're close to them and you care about them, you need to be thoughtful and kind and speak it to them and then let it go, let it go and let the Holy Spirit do the work. Your job isn't to badger them into repentance. Your job isn't to beat them down. Your job isn't to pound them in. You just, is to be clear. I think what you're doing is breaking God's heart yeah. It's clearly in scripture, a violation of Jesus' heart for people. You should not, I mean, I've said this to, to, to believers that I know have stolen money from other Christians. And I've said, clearly, you are violating Jesus' heart. You, if you give your word, your yes is yes. If you take money and you borrow money from somebody and you don't pay it back, you have lied to the person and that is wrong. Yeah. And I'll just state it on those matter of fact terms and let it go. Then it's between them and the Lord. It's not me, it's them. Right. Now, how does that differ from, so you're saying if someone's a believer, that's how you do it. If someone's yeah. not a believer, how does someone's that work? If someone's not a believer, then non-believers act like non-believers. You don't, I don't ever spend any time telling those people what they should or shouldn't do. Yeah. I just tell them, listen, the things that you're doing might hurt you because they're not life-giving. Mm-hmm. Jesus wants to give you life. But that's a general statement, not a specific one. Right, right. Um, Daniel says, if we have a calling on our life, oh, I love this. Um, if we have a calling on our life, how do we find a Barnabas to not only mentor us, but also to give us an opportunity? Great call. That's a great, I mean, first off, every leader in our church and other churches, um, every lay leader that we have, all of us should think like this. All of us should think, I've got to reach out and reach down and pick some people up. I've got to make a time and a place for the, for the Sauls of Tarsus in my journey to help them become the people that God, the Paul, the apostles that God wants to make them into. Yeah. We all have to think like that. We've got to look at people that other people would not want to hang with, other people would not want to invest in, and say, I'm going to invest in that person. So my, what I would say to you, Daniel, is go prayerfully. You know, when you see somebody that you really think, I want to be like that. When I was a young Christian, I would watch people around me, even as I got older, and I would think, I want to be like that. I want that characteristic in my life. I would go to those people and say, could I be around you sometimes? Could I have time with you sometimes? I would ask them straight out. I mean, I did that with Jack Hayford. That's how I ended up being discipled by Pastor Jack was um, God had opened the door and given me favor with him, and that's what happened. But I did that for many years with many different leaders of many different persuasions. 
before I ever ended up with somebody like Jack Hayford. I, I just did that. I was always looking for people that were ahead of me. Yeah. They were ahead of me. They were ahead of me. Now that I'm super old, it's hard to find those people because <laughs> I'm now the super old guy. So people come to me with those same questions and I'm blessed to try to help them. That's actually what we were doing here last Thursday with the pastors. And we're probably gonna do next week with hundreds of pastors who've contacted us and said, would you help us understand the journey? And that's my yeah. responsibility today is help them in the journey. And I'm trying to do that. Yeah. When you were, this is from me, when you were at your most knuckleheadedness, like when you were like Saul in this situation, who was your Barnabas? Who took a chance on you? Well, one of the people that took a chance on me was Norm Brinkley. Yeah. Yeah, Norm Brinkley that works here at Water of Life. Norm was, had a position far above me in a church that was beginning that I had been in and ended up being in for 17 or 18 years. And Norm would come to me and challenge me when I would come you know, from a late date or a, out whatever I was doing. I don't know, I was a young Christian. I was still drinking and dancing and going to bars sometimes. And, and Norm would, and I would come to church late. Norm would stop me on the steps on the way in to Sweeten Hall over on Hellman Avenue. And that's where we were meeting in those days. That was 1972. And Norm would challenge me and say, you know, you need to come to church on time. You need to do the right things. You're never gonna be the man that God wants you to be. And I, I hated it, man. I, I would see him there on the steps coming in. And I would be dragging myself in late to church. And I'd think, you ought to be happy I'm here, dude. And he would, he would be like, you need a wake-up call, man. You need to figure out that God wants to use you. And Norm was actually the first person to ever offer me a job in the ministry. Wow. And I turned it down because I was a foolish young man who wanted to do his own thing. I turned it down and I walked away from God and went to Idaho and hid out. Yeah. Did my own thing and God broke my heart. One of the people that came to Idaho when I was there, one of the few people that drove all the way to North Idaho was Norm and Joni Brinkley. Came yeah. to North Idaho and uh, kept his relationship with me. I, I would have to say Norm Brinkley was probably the guy in my life yeah. that really, I mean, I had several others along the way. Ray Schmatz, who founded Life Bible Fellowship in Upland. Um, there were several people, uh, Youth with, for Christ, leaders that mm -hmm. took me under their wings as a young guy and mentored me. But the person that really helped me to, in the transformation from the old guy to, the, to learning to be sacrificial, live sacrificial was Norm Brinkley. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I spoke to Norm today. He's still, still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> He's still doing it. Such a good guy. Yeah. Um, uh, KJV 1611 says, since Paul didn't walk with Jesus and wasn't part of the 12 apostles, was his message different from them? Um, since Romans 16 says that he preached Jesus according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. Did Jesus change his plan when he appeared to Paul and told him to go to the Gentiles and the 12 apostles stayed with the Jews in the beginning? No, I, I don't think Jesus changes plans. I mean, I've heard people joke and say, Jesus must have been up, sitting up in heaven saying, you know, I, I must have chosen the wrong guys because nobody will leave Jerusalem. I've heard people say this, and we got to find somebody that will leave Jerusalem, and they found Paul. I, I don't think that's what actually happened. I think it was ordained, as, as Paul said in, in Galatians 1, he said it was ordained before the beginning of time that God would select me and anoint me as an apostle, um, the least of all the apostles, he said, mm -hmm. and, and send him to the Gentiles. And yes, the message was different. Um, he had a different message because it was to the Gentiles. That's why it was a different message. It was the same Jesus, the same um, message of healing and life, 
but it was framed in a whole different way because it was sent to Gentiles, not to Jews. Yeah. Gentiles didn't have the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have anything mm -hmm. to, to go to to find out who Jesus was. The Jews had the Old Testament scriptures, so they always hearkened back to the Old Testament. That's what made Paul so great and so difficult to deal with in the, in the synagogues in Damascus and Jerusalem because he was so schooled in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, yeah. Far beyond all these other guys, he was the uh, valedictorian of his class. You know, he was a smart guy. Right. And he was able to defeat all the other leaders in their thinking. I'm guessing the only person in town who was as smart as him was Gamaliel. Mm -hmm. That's really what my guess would be, was his, was his mentor and his teacher, Gamaliel. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, Carla said, Pastor Dan, what resources are best to get some of those extra historical facts? Oh boy. <laughs> well, I, I mean, if you're talking about commentaries, I read several commentaries. F.F. Bruce has a great commentary on the book of Acts. Um, I listen to people. I'm a Jack Hayford guy, so I use Jack Hayford all the time and resources from Pastor Jack because he built my life. Um, a lot of times, a lot of this stuff I just do myself, honestly. I, I mean, I find it and I yeah. process it. There's um, people out there. John Corson is always a good verse-to-verse -verse yeah. guy. Pastor John up at uh, Applegate is a good verse-to-verse -verse guy to, if you want to listen to for just thoughts that go deeper. Mm -hmm. Pastor John's really good with that. And, um, but yeah, I, I, and I've got two or three commentaries sitting on my desk. I could bring them in the next couple of weeks and, and let people see them if they wanted to look at them. And, but really I find that I, I get more when I listen to a couple of people like Pastor Jack or John Corson or somebody else speak about the book of Acts. And then I dig in myself and I read at nighttime before I go to sleep. I read F.F. Bruce last night before yeah. I went to sleep. And so that, I mean, I'm just sitting there praying through things and thinking, oh, I never thought that thought. I never thought, oh, that's how far away, you know, it is from Jaffa to, right. to yeah. You find those details in like F.F. Bruce's book. And I could bring a couple of commentaries that people could find that kind of information. Yeah. Yeah. Really helpful. And I know that one of the things that, that you just mentioned that is so important is to is to read scripture with the Holy Spirit yeah. just right there with you. Just invite him into that yeah. moment and have him help you interrogate the scripture. Yeah. You know, ask those I questions. Mean, I, I, I'll start in chapter 10 then, as soon as I'm done with nine, and start reading it for the whole week. So yeah. I read it over and over and over and over and over and praying every day for revelation, new pictures, new insights, those kinds of things. When you're cross-referencing things, you can crash into verses like F.F. Bruce would give you some verses and you gotta go look them up and think, okay, that really is clearly helps define what happened to Paul here. So I'm gonna include that in the study and those kind of things. The other thing I need to say is I use um, Logos. You know, um, yeah. I have probably have 700 books on my computer. I had a guy the other day, I was trying to do a interview with Fox and Friends in New York and the guy's like, man, your computer is so old, we can't use it. You gotta go get something else. You're like, your, your picture isn't even gonna be HD, your computer. But I said, look, I, he goes, you have a really nice building, why don't you get a better computer? Oh my gosh. <laughs> guy said that to me and I said, the answer is because, because my computer holds 700 books. Yeah. So I study, you know, I can go take my computer on vacation with me, I can type in Acts 9, and just spend hours reading books, so. We're gonna start a GoFundMe for your computer. <laughs> you don't need to do that. This meeting. I can get a new computer, <laughs> but I, I like my old computer. It's 12, uh, what did somebody say to me the other day? It's uh, nine years old now. Wow. 
So they go, this is antique. And I go, yeah, but it's awesome. It's, yeah, it's like dog years. It's yeah. like 60-something <laughs> years good. old. Um, Carla, too, I, I would encourage you, uh, Pastor Dan, so many of the things that he says are, uh, they come out of time spent in Israel. Yeah. And if you ever have a chance, Go I know to for Israel. me. Come to Israel with us, yeah. It's, it just brings so much of this. Talk. I mean, I say to people, look, save your money. It's worth it because it's a game changer. I remember my son, and he was just like me. <laughs> didn't fall too far from the tree. Cause I used to just say, I'm not going to Israel. I'm going to Cambodia. I'm going to go to Thailand. Yeah. I'm going to Nigeria. I'm going to these other, I'm not going to Israel. And I, until Pastor Jack finally just looked at me and said, you are coming to Israel with me this year. Mm -hmm. And that's going to happen because I need to train you on how to take other people because I'm going to be fading away shortly. And I'm expecting for you to carry the torch into Israel with me. Yeah. He actually said that to me. So I went to Israel the first couple of times with Pastor Jack Hayford and I got schooled up on it. But the first time I went was a bit kicking and screaming and really resistant. Mm -hmm. And I was changed immediately. I was probably on the ground in Israel for a day. And I knew I had made this prolific uh, bad decision for years that yeah. I had that it, that I'd really hurt myself, that I, I should have been in Israel years earlier. Yeah. And um, my son said the same thing, Dad, I don't really want to go. I don't think it's that important. I said, just trust me, go. He came with me and he goes, can I go back? You know, yeah. I want to go back because it's so profound when you're in Israel. It's such a game changer. It's unlike any place I've ever traveled in the world. You touch the ground, you feel like you're in a different world. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain. It's hard to, to get people to really grasp it until you're there. And all the people that have gone on the trips with us, they almost all say the same thing. They just say, yeah. wow. Just a wow is what you feel when you leave Israel. Yeah, and the yeah. Bible just comes to life in, it in does. so many you, cool you ways. You understand how small things look and how, you know, even last week when I talked about, you know, that, that maybe James and John were Jesus' cousins, people are like, what? Yeah. That, you know, but when you see the, the demographics and, the, and just the geography and the locales are so close, yeah. you're expecting Jesus could be in the highest mountain in the world. He could be on Mount Everest if he wanted to be, but he chose this other little mountain over the Sea of Galilee. Mm -hmm. He could be in the largest ocean in the world if he wanted, but he chose this little lake that we call Lake Gennesaret or Sea of Galilee. Yeah. And that gives you a picture in the heart of God. Mm -hmm. It's not about largeness, but it is about special. Yeah. And that's God's heart, so. Yeah, it's so good. Good point though, John, um, thank you. Sabrina says, how do we, Reckon is Sabrina here working? Is she working? There? I don't think it's she is. She's Sabrina. over here working and she's texting. Um, <laughs> but Sabrina, you earned an answer, girl, because you are awesome. You do. You and Kevin <laughs> make this church roll. We're so grateful for you. I know, especially right now. Uh, how can we reconcile our American notion of persecution with true biblical persecution? When we read passages about suffering with Christ, but our suffering is very mild, should we be worried? Well, last thing, don't be worried. Yeah. I'm looking right at you right now. Don't be worried because worry doesn't accomplish anything in the kingdom of God ever. So don't be worried. And remember this, that God is bigger than the church. I mean, we fail and throughout history, the church has failed a lot. And what's so great is God doesn't give up on us. You know, he just keeps correcting us and reproving and building us. Yeah, our view of persecution, I think, is way different than the biblical view of persecution. All you have to do is travel. You know, when I, many of you know that I've worked in that country in the Middle East with the underground church there that I'm not really supposed to say on social media. Um, one of the, the largest underground church in the world today. And um, those people are persecuted. 
Yeah. We had we had one time two years ago, I think it was, when I think 338 people disappeared in one day, were arrested because they had relationship with Jesus, and we've never heard from them again, ever. Yeah. They're either in labor camps or they're dead. That's persecution. What they're doing in North Korea is persecution. What they're mm -hmm. doing in, uh, I just got an email from uh, Nigeria, and Pastor Friday said, Pastor Dan, pray for us. These guys from the north, the Muslim terrorists are coming down in wagons with cattle, and they're killing our kids. And oh, wow. Pray for us right now, it's getting dangerous. That's persecution. Yeah. Yeah, and we need to keep context there is that, sure, we all get rejected for Jesus. I mean, I'm getting hammered on social media for some of the things that people saw on TV that were misrepresented on interviews. Friends, anybody who's ever done an interview with television knows that they cut it up and they make it look like they want it to look. It's the, that's why I said, please go to Instagram and look at the whole thing if you want to understand the heart of what yeah. we said. You got to watch 20 minutes of it, not a three-minute snippet on Fox News or Channel 5 or 4 or whoever it is. It, they all do this, and this is just what happened. And some of them do it and they frame it up thoughtfully, some of them frame it up terribly, but the truth is they're framing it up. And if you want to get the heart of what somebody actually says, you got to watch the whole thing so you get context to what somebody's saying. So yeah. I hope after 30 years here that people understand what I live and die for, that I love the people of Water of Life, I love our community, I love our leaders, I pray for Governor Newsom. I told somebody the other day, they were kind of railing on him, and I said, you know, I was driving down the freeway, and, and, and I just got this really deep affection for Governor Newsom in my heart, and I just, I knew it was the Lord, because yeah. I've, I've felt it before for other people, and I knew it was the Lord, the Spirit of God saying, pray for him, mm -hmm. pray for him, and you know, he looked so tired on TV the other day, you know, feel compassion for him. He's under duress that none of us have ever experienced. I, I mean, I can't imagine, this is the, a, a monstrous state to try to shepherd through something like this. And that's why I don't want to be perceived as, as kicking against him, because that isn't what I want to do. I do want him to recognize people of faith, and I don't think in his ideology and paradigm, he does. Mm -hmm. I don't think he understands the need for people like the email I read to have spiritual contact to be built up and healed inside and given life. And, we, and I have a responsibility for those people, and, and on those terms, I will stand up for those people. That's what I'm trying to do right now. Kindly, thoughtfully, um, with humility, but I'm going to stand up. So. Yeah. Um, I think we'll close with this. We have a last, one last question from Kathy. It's similar to what was asked before, but a little bit different in that she says, regarding questioning God, wasn't Zacharias, father of John the Baptist, unable to speak because he didn't believe the angel who told him his wife would give birth to a son? Why wasn't that okay to doubt the angel? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I'm going to send you back to your Bible, Kathy, tell you to do your own homework. No, I'm teasing you, girl. I mean, really the story there was, I think, profound and, and different in terms of this, that what was happening was um, there had been a word spoken and, and a chance given for him to settle the score, if you would, and he didn't. I think he could have, when he was given that opportunity, I'm trying to find a, the text here so I, so I don't butcher it to death, but when it, when it happened and he was, when, he was, when it was spoken to Zechariah, and you see the prophetic word, um, where is it at here? Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. Fear gripped him. It's chapter one of Luke. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Wife will bear you a son 
and you, and you will have joy and gladness. He will be great and blah, blah, blah. And he will turn many back as he will go as a forerunner. And Zachariah said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel, stands in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you. Behold, you will now be silent and able to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words should be fulfilled in their proper time. See, I, I think there was a difference in that when Ananias was spoken to by the Lord, he immediately believed it was Jesus. He didn't question whether it, it was God speaking to him or that he should do what, he was interacting on, I think, a different level mm -hmm. than, than the, this picture that we see here. I, I just think that what Zacharias did was full of unbelief and he wasn't entering in on the terms of, okay, I get that you're gonna do this, I don't understand it, could you clarify why you're doing it for me? I think it was more in his mind, I, I don't think this is really gonna happen. I don't yeah. think that. And so because of your unbelief, I'm gonna let you go silent and move on those terms. There's another thought as well that enters into my thinking theologically in this. If I was sitting in a seminary class, I would throw this into the fray. And that would be Zacharias was in the Old Testament. This story is an Old Testament story. And Ananias is in the New Testament. So Ananias was living under a deeper grace than Zacharias. He was living under the grace of the cross, mm -hmm. which changes a lot of things in terms of our interaction with God. Yeah. So, yeah, we could argue that one in seminary someday, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. It's a great question, though. Great question. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think we uh, we're out of time, so we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Okay. Um, and uh, let's pray for just from what you said and the question from Sabrina. I think we really, I really want to pray for the persecuted church as well tonight. Amen. So, Father, we thank you for the freedom that we do enjoy in our country. Yes. Lord, I do appreciate so much the grace that we have and, and the ability to worship, the ability to worship um, on our own terms uh, for the most part, mm -hmm. that we're able to sing with full voice uh, yes. in a crowd of people that we love and do so publicly. God, we just pray for all these nations that Pastor was just talking about that are they can't do that, that they're persecuted now more than ever. And so, Father, I pray that you would show them mercy, God, that there would be freedom in those nations, that they would be able to worship you, that they would be able to call themselves Christians and evangelize openly. God, I pray that your, your um, gospel would not ever be restrained, but, God, that the, the Spirit of God would be mighty and um, prevalent in those nations and that we would see freedom in our lifetimes in thank those you. nations. God, we thank you so much for our governor, we thank you for all those who yes, are uh, in positions of power and authority over us. God, we do pray that you would turn their hearts, God, that you'd be gracious to them. Yes, Lord. Father, that they would know you, and not just so that we can get our way, but God, that uh, they would know you, they would know yes, salvation. Lord. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for our church. We thank you that you are God of our church, God, that this is your body. And Lord, we pray for each one who's listening right now that you would bless them and encourage them right where they're at. In Jesus' name. Amen. Before we close, Pastor John, I want to cover just a couple of things really quick. Yeah. I'm going to send out some infomercials like we did at the beginning of this whole time in the next few days that will clarify everything we're talking about here as far as reopening, what it would look like, why we're doing it. It'll be detailed. It'll be really clear, which I didn't do tonight. I kind of rambled on with you to give you information, but um, I want to clarify all that. We'll post those on our webpage as well, on our Water of Life updates and help you to understand the journey and why we are taking it. So. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So 
Thank you so much for being with us again, and uh, we'll see you over the weekend. God bless you.